Good morning. There are three times, four times as many people here. <laughs> I would come at 1032. <laughs> We're uh, now in Acts chapter 19. You've got the reading in uh, your bulletin. We're not reading the whole chapter, but just this uh, section. And we find Paul in Ephesus. We begin with verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us grace to know Christ all the more, to worship him, to serve him, to trust in him all of our days. Through this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this first paragraph I'm going to treat as a kind of introduction to the larger part where we get to our two points, only Christ delivers us from evil and only Christ deserves our worship. But this first section I I want to call a tragic rejection of Christ, a tragic rejection of Christ. We find Paul reasoning as the habit is of the synagogue, in the synagogue, Uh, reasoning is a kind of a discussion back and forth and Then it says some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. These are uh, progressive words. They kept being stubborn. They kept uh, not believing in him. And this is a very strong word because it's the same word used 12 times in Exodus to describe Pharaoh becoming hardened of heart. Pharaoh. So they're hardened like unto Pharaoh, but there's a striking text in Psalm 95 that takes that word used about Pharaoh, and the writer of Psalm 95 is looking back to Israel in the wilderness, and he goes along praising and then breaks and says, don't harden your hearts like Israel did in the wilderness. 
That's strong because at that point, the great hardening was done to Pharaoh, right? And now he's saying, you know what? In the wilderness, God's people hardened themselves as Pharaoh had hardened himself. It's a shocking statement in Psalm 95. And the writer of Hebrews, as he does a couple of times in Hebrews, goes back to Psalm 95 and he uses this same word. So he's reflecting on Psalm 95 that's reflecting on the wilderness. But he is warning Christians at this point, these particular Christians are Jewish Christians, that are in danger of turning away from Christ. And he says, he quotes the Psalm 95 and says, don't harden your hearts. He even says in that context, keep encouraging each other. Chapter 3, verse 13. Keep encouraging one another day after day to guard against the deceitful, uh, being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this hardening is a tragic event here to see it happening again now in regard to the proclamation of the Messiah who has come. And you, you get this, uh, he, he, this word unbelief is also used there in Hebrews 3. And it reflects what happened in the wilderness. Uh, Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 have these statements that show what this hardening was about. They did not believe in God and they didn't trust his saving power. You see, it's a hardness against God's salvation. It's a hardness against the goodness and greatness of God's power. Against his willingness, against his promises that he wants to do good. And Psalm 78 says they didn't believe in God. They didn't trust him. Psalm 106 says they despised the pleasant land having no faith in his promise. That's why Hebrews is all the time saying, continue to trust him, continue to trust him. Even if persecution is terrible, continue to entrust yourself to Jesus. And here, with the long-awaited Messiah, who will deliver them not only to the land of Canaan, which was Old Testament, but will deliver us into the new creation itself, who will take away our sins, who died on the cross. The God of the universe has come in Christ Jesus and being proclaimed. This is a tragic hardening, a tragic unbelief on the part of these Jews for whom first the Messiah came. But the warning comes to us as well, as as I've said. To guard one another, to keep our hearts tender, to keep trusting Jesus. Tender to be open to, he is good. Give yourself up to his will. He has wonderful promises to you. Continue to believe him. Don't harden yourself. And there, particularly in Hebrews, the deceitfulness of sin will harden you against the promises of God and the goodness of God. Well, that's a tragic, uh, a tragic unbelief, a, a tragic rejection of Christ. But we're even warned ourselves against the same thing. But then we have this section that's pretty wild 
uh, as we get on into what happens in Ephesus. It says he was doing extraordinary miracles. These mean out of the ordinary, not often seen kind of miracles, you know. Um, And this, this thing of the handkerchiefs and the aprons, I remember the first time I read this, read this a long time ago, I was kind of freaked out by it. You know, like, really? A handkerchief's going to do this? I, I, you know, and of course, uh, modern day uh, TV evangelists have used this for good money. You know, send in your money, we'll send your handkerchief. It's going to do good for you and all that kind of stuff. Um, I've said that as a caricature at times. Yeah, and keep the money coming in and I'll send you my handkerchief, you know. But, but this really happened with Paul. But I want you to picture this, and if, you, if, you, if you're taking any notes, you could draw this. Um, but draw up first Christ, then draw an arrow down to Paul, then draw an arrow down to Hanky and Apron, <laughs> then draw an arrow down to Sick, then draw an arrow down to evil spirits and disease because that's the final era and they went out literally it says diseases left them the the evil spirits came out of them right the absolute power but the point is not in the handkerchief right it's the, the power of christ that through paul and then as a visible sign of christ's presence these objects that brought about this healing. And I'd, I would compare it to, and this may be helpful, <clears throat> the staff of Moses. It's interesting in chapter 4 when God's talking to Moses about going to Egypt. He says, take this staff, chapter 4, verse 17, and with it you'll be able to do these signs and wonders. And it's not as though the staff itself, you know, like, gosh, if I only had that staff, you know, boy, I could do anything, you know. That's not the point. This represented the presence of God, represented the power and authority of God. It, that's what it stood for. <clears throat> so it's real interesting. I love it, you know, uh, a husband and father will say, yeah, I got the kid, my wife and kids in the car and we took off. Well, it says almost the same thing, uh, but a different vehicle. In chapter 4, verse 20, it says, uh, Moses got his uh, wife and kids on the donkey, and they took off for Egypt, right? But then there's this sentence. It says, but he took the staff of God. Just an underscoring on the part of Moses himself, who we believe is the author. It took the staff of God. So what do you find in, uh, in, in Exodus in the miracles, when he touched the staff uh, in chapter 7 to the water, the water turned to blood. Chapter 8, he uh, touches the, he, he, he waves the staff over the water and frogs come out. He hits the uh, ground and gnats come out of the ground. In chapter 9, he waves it over the, uh, waves it in the sky and hail comes down. He, in chapter 10, he waves it over the land and, and locusts come forward. Chapter 14 is the big one. Anybody, what does he do there? Parting of the Red Sea. I can't hear you. You have a mask on. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's the big one, right? Raises his staff. The waters part. But it wasn't the staff, you know. It could have been anything. It's God. It's what it represents. That God is present. God is acting. So, with this uh, instance, which 
somehow is weirder to us. I guess we've seen the Ten Commandments so many times, you know, we don't think about the staff. But it's the same thing. And basically, this represents the absolute presence of Christ. And who gets glorified? Verse 17, Christ does. Christ is lifted up. The, the, the Greek word has mega in it. You know, he's mega lifted up uh, through this. And people continued. The word of the Lord kept spreading through these events. <clears throat> so this is uh, all about the, the power of God being manifested uh, in uh, and through the work of Paul. And also, it's very important to realize, and, and this will be underscored when we get to the uh, would-be exorcists here, that they're attached to Paul in particular to underscore this is the messenger sent from God. This is the messenger who is giving us the word of the God of the universe, and he is declaring that this God came to earth, and this underscores that reality, these uh, miracles. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So then you have these, uh, what I call traveling exorcists, right? <clears throat> like a traveling salesman, which is fine if you're a traveling salesman. Um, but these guys are selling exorcism. That's their deal. And they, this is so appalling what they do because they themselves totally reject Christ, right? They despise Jesus. They don't worship him. They don't worship him as the son of God, as the savior of sinners. They don't worship him as the Lord and and Messiah. This is mockery. This is abuse. This is blasphemy. Using his name... So they, you know, they, they'd heard the words and, well, oh, this must be the magic formula that we use. And, and we could do the same thing. We could make some big bucks on this, right? We could, we could be so popular. We'd, we'd have work all over the place. We just didn't have the right magic formula. I mean, think of that, of treating the Lord Jesus in this way. Of course, I can think of uh, quite a bit of that going on right now on TV. But what happens, and this is just, I mean, there's so much funny about this, right? That uh, they, they, they say these bold words, and I just love, I mean, I'm not admiring an evil spirit, but it's just fantastic what is said, you know. Yeah, I, I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you? Not that he didn't know who they were. I mean, demons know a lot. You know, they're, they're angels gone bad. They are powerful, very knowledgeable creatures. We can't even begin to cope with any of them in our own power. But just the way he put it to say, yeah, Jesus, Paul, you're nobody. And why did he do that? Because they're not with Jesus. He trembled. They, demons trembled at the presence of Jesus. They, they cried out to him when he'd show up and said, don't send us into the pit right now, please. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, they had every respect. Like James says, the demons uh, know, believe in God, and they tremble at him. But he's not trembling at these guys because they don't know God, because they don't know Christ. They're not associated with that. They're on his side, right? They're on his side. They're under the hand of of the evil one. 
He can do with them whatever he wishes. And boy, does he show it. This is wild, isn't it? That he reads, they went out of the house, they went out naked and wounded. And I'm like, how did that happen? It's like he turned into a tornado, you know, just ripped everything off, you know. Maybe technically he grabbed their robes, you know, and threw them against the wall, ripped the robes off. Or, or they're trying to get out and he just tore them off of them and they had to escape with their lives. That's the picture. It's, it's a phenomenal uh, event that's being pictured here. And what does it underscore? It underscores the uniqueness of Paul's message. The uniqueness of Paul's power was only because his association, his representing Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ was glorified in this, not Paul. Why people came to Christ, not to Paul. You read about the use of of such miracles in Hebrews 2 when he, the writer of Hebrews is recalling those who came, the apostles who came and spoke the word. And then he says, and God came alongside of them with signs and wonders and power. In other words, God came along with these uh, signs and miracles and said, these are the real thing. This is my message. This comes from me. Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you by me. Uh, It verified who I was. That's why we're not looking for these kind of miracles. They were done in connection with the apostles to establish that this is God's word coming from these men. God has sent them. And these miracles attest to that. They prove it. They show it. But this is for us too so that we can have confidence. This fantastic event is so that we can say, yeah, The gospel is right. The gospel is true. Look how God showed it right here in this amazing event. And we also uh, realize that this same uh, power of God, this same work of God is in us, which we'll touch on as we close. Well, I want to then more briefly talk about this Next event that occurs where, uh, as a result of this action, we get to point number two, which is only Christ deserves our worship. Uh, This is 18 through 20 in your text there. So they they come bringing all of these uh, magic books and everything and just burn them. And they had a a tremendous value. There's no telling how many people uh, brought how many books to do this. Um, And you have to bear in mind that magic of that day was all about power, all about controlling your environment, controlling your future, uh, making things turn out good for you, you know. Uh, We do even crazy things, don't we? Like, don't let a black cat cross your path. Really, that's going to determine your future. That's going to make your day. Don't walk under a ladder, you know. That's going to really change your day. I mean, those, but we've all been influenced by that kind of thing. But it gets really, really uh, uh, encompassing for a whole culture when you think of the various idols that people even today have. 
Um, I have called at times, I used to be a docent uh, that did tours at the Kimball, but I've called the Asian section kind of the house of idolatry <laughs> because it mainly is full of different idols. Those are the art pieces of uh, the cultures of, of Asia. And I'm going to describe a couple of them, but, and, and, and you'll see how foolish these things are, but then we have to reflect what are my foolish idols? One is Ganesha. You come up to this idol. It's broken in a lot of places, but it's like a, a baby boy with a big fat stomach and an elephant head. Okay? Very important God. How did Ganesha come to be? Well, Pavarti, uh, the, one of the chief goddesses, was wanting to take a bath. She wanted to protect her uh, bath from intrusion, so she wiped the sweat off of her and created a son, Ganesha. Uh, this is while Shiva, her cohort, was off doing something. Well, Shiva comes back. He wants to go in to see Parvati. Ganesha's never seen Shiva. So he's trying to stop him, and Shiva's a great guy. He just cuts his head off. Parvati comes out and says, oh, you cut off my son's head. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. The first thing that comes along, I'll put their head on him. Guess what came by? An elephant. Okay, that's a god, okay? That's a god. Now, this god <clears throat> is also a god who eats a lot of candy. He wears a belt because one time he ate so much candy, his stomach burst open. So he has to wear a belt. This is the god that you come to first in every uh, temple, Hindu temple, because he's the god that brings fortune. It's one of the most important gods because things will go well if you worship him right. Even before you see the other gods, you need to stop by Ganesha so that you have a good trip to the other gods, good results. There's another one there is this fiery-looking demon-like thing. He's got big horns. He's got teeth, claws. He's he's already crushing another uh, fierce animal underneath him. He's got fire coming out behind him. This was put in your grave to guarantee that you had power in the afterlife to protect you against all the bad things that are in the next life. A piece of clay that got hardened in an oven is going to protect you. But it does show how how desperate we are for protection, how desperately we hold on to things instead of God, and we have our own forms of this. Whether it's money, entertainment, power, prestige, uh, whether it's sensuality, we have every god and goddess in the world that we tend to hold on to, and we find it so hard to entrust ourselves fully to God and, and for him to make us happy. Entrust our full happiness and future into his hands. You know, when the first commandment says, you'll have no other gods before me, it doesn't mean you have no other gods in front of, like, uh, more important than me. It means you will have no other gods in my face. Of course, he fills the earth, and any time we are serving another god, it's right in his face. But it has the feel of 
a person bringing someone else into his or her home, sleeping with them in the full presence of the family. That's the feel of, of the first commandment. Don't have other gods in my face. But we're all idol worshipers by nature. That's who we are. That's what we are. And it takes God's grace in our life to break us free of our our idolatry, to entrust ourselves into the precious hands of God himself. And uh, as he's known in Christ Jesus. Um, And the way Jeremiah puts it is that if you are trusting idols or trusting man, you'll be like a guy who goes out and he leaves this fountain of water, this, this glorious, cool, refreshing fountain that always replenishing. And he abandons this and he goes out and he digs a well and it doesn't even hold water. That's the contrast, you know. To give yourself ultimately and only to God himself. And then to embrace his creation under his authority. And as he would uh, delight you to enjoy it for his glory. Or you push him away to feast upon this world apart from him. And we'll be like people that dig empty wells. A last question we have to ask, I think, is... This happened, this, this event, the, the, the way the word spread, and it's interesting, it says it spread not only in Ephesus, but in all of Asia. And if you recall the second missionary journey, Paul was trying to go, let's see, for you, it's this way, he's trying to go from Antioch to Asia, and God wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't let him go. And then he tried to go up to Bithynia, he wouldn't let him go. Then he goes over to Greece, and we have the Philippian jailer, and Lydia, right? But now is the time to go to Asia. (laughs) And he stays there for two years, and the whole area receives the word, Jew and Greek. It's an amazing statement of the spread of the word of God. But how does he do this if we're not... Now, we have the message that these amazing deeds accompanied this word as a way to say, this is why we believe this is God's word, why we believe these men came from God, because these miracles were attached to their ministry. But also, the thing that God does with us, and Jesus alludes to it several times, is he brings about in our life as a church extraordinary works of love. Extraordinary works of love. Extraordinary reconciliation, extraordinary bonds brought about within a body that nobody could expect. Incredible peacemaking, incredible restoration of relationship or family, incredible transformation of lives. This is what we bring that breaks out into our world. Love for our enemies, which nobody sees anywhere, but But Jesus says, that's when you begin to look like a son of God. It's when you, like God, do good even to your enemies. That's the great work Jesus wants to do in us. And as as Jesus said, if you love one another, they'll know that you're my disciples. If you love one another as I've loved you, then they'll know that I uh, am sent by God. 
This, and of course, our love to one another will never save one person. Our love to them in itself will not save them. It's only the word of Jesus Christ. It's only the word about Christ. It's only the gospel that can save. But we especially live in a world that despises all authority, suspicious of all authority, suspicious of all truth claims. And this is what gets the message. To even listen to the message is to have extraordinary love. And so Jesus was even able to say, greater works will you do than even I did. And part of that is the great work of love that he means to do in our midst. May he do it. May we glorify him. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that you continue to be the resurrected Christ. You continue to work powerfully in your people. And Lord, you intend to continue to spread the word of Jesus throughout this whole world. Oh, Lord, give us grace and expectation of what you will do powerfully in your people even now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.